and welcome back to Adventures Through Asian Cinema, where your hosts Ben and Jack discuss films from different Eastern countries. Join us on this journey as we dive deeper into the fascinating world of world cinema, two films at a time. Today on the podcast, we're covering a film from Pakistan and a film from Mongolia. Battle through hordes of the undead and try and outlast a mace-wielding murderer as we talk about the cult classic Hell's Ground from 2007. Then take a nomadic trip through the Mongolian wilderness as we follow the naturalistic tale of the Bachelun family in the cave of the yellow dog. Ben, my good friend, how are you doing on this fine day? I'm doing really well. I'm happy to be recording another podcast. How are you doing? All good, all good. What you've been up to recently? Have you seen anything good? It's been a while since we last recorded. I assume we've both been watching movies regardless of podcasts anyway. I have been watching an absurd amount of slasher films. Our friend <laughs> our friend Kodiak hosted a challenge called Slape Roll, mm. and yep. I'm still living in it as far as I'm concerned, so that's where I've been. What were your highlights of the slasher binge that you've been on? Uh, the highlights for sure... Um, well, I watched all of the Friday the 13th, all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, and all mm. of the Halloweens. I think that Halloween oh, is undoubtedly the best slasher film. Um, the f- uh, yeah, yeah, just the film yeah. rather than franchise. Um, yeah. Franchise-wise, okay. I'm a Friday the 13th fan, I have to admit. Give it I to feel Jason. Like there's to more consistency. It. Even when it's bad, it's like mm. a specific type of bad that I'm used to and I can appreciate. I think with halloween like the highs are so high and the lows are so low and it's the same with nightmare on elm street really but i think the jason films are quite just consistently like yeah fun. even the worst ones it it's not like offensively bad at least not to me and <laughs> and the highs are actually pretty high i think friday the 13th um part four and part six uh rule really really hard yeah so fun so good well, we're going to be using that slasher knowledge today as we talk about the first ever slasher film from Pakistan. So that is Hell's Ground, and we'll dive right in here. Hell's Ground, also known as Zibikana which roughly translates to Slaughterhouse, is a 2007 slasher film from Pakistan. Now, I don't know how representative this film is of Pakistan's larger cinematic output, but for a piece of genre homage filmmaking, I had a decent time watching this movie. The the plot is simple. A group of teenagers lie to their parents in order to sneak off to a concert. You've heard this a thousand times before. It is a very formulaic slasher film. Their van gets diverted because of a political protest and soon they are encountering some hungry flesh-eating zombies and a leather face style murderer wielding a deadly ball and chain this film is rather low budget sort of grassroots production with nothing solely original other than a charming appreciation for genre classics and the ability to stitch different elements together it's fun to see this familiar formula used in a really unfamiliar setting You can feel director Omar Ali Khan's appreciation for that era of horror films that came out of America, like Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, but also comic series published by EC Comics like The Vault of Horror and Tales from the Crypt. 
Omar Ali Khan himself is a cinema enthusiast and film critic. Uh, he writes articles for the website upperstall.com and Mondo Macabro. And at the moment of recording, Hell's Ground is his only feature film. Ben, what did you think of Hell's Ground? I have to say, when we first chose this, which was before I went on this slasher binge, um, I, I mean, I was like excited, but I didn't really know what to expect. And I had certain preconceived notions about all the slasher franchises that I was going to watch. And yep. after going through them, I think I was surprised by how many I didn't like. <laughs> there, sure, I, yeah, I yeah. thought that I would enjoy more of the sequels. I thought um, more of them would be, I don't know, dumb or appealing in a way that I really liked. But yeah, yeah. a lot of them actually left me pretty cold and maybe even upset sometimes. Uh, so, <laughs> those, Halloween, so then, those Halloween sequels get, ugh. Oh, yeah. I, like, I felt, I felt disrespected sometimes. <laughs> um, and so then I go into Hell's Ground, having gotten two and a half of the franchises, you know, uh, watched at that point. Hmm. And I have to say I'm surprised by how good I think it actually was. Yeah. I mean, as you said, this is like a bare-bones grassroots project um but you can tell that it, it was made by someone that loves horror movies just loves movies in general and that's not a thing that often translates well like i've seen projects from film critics or you know film enthusiasts that think oh it's not that hard i could make something like that and i feel like uh, in an interview with sam raimi about the evil dead films they just decided to make a horror film because they were quote unquote the easiest to make so I think a lot of independent filmmakers are drawn to horror movies and slasher movies because all you really need is like a group of friends and a camera and you can kind of work it out from the rest. But some of the films are like really bad and like they don't really understand what makes a slasher film work. Whereas I think Hell's Ground, uh, the people behind the team, really appreciate you know what makes those 80s classics work and they funnel that into this movie. Yeah, I think... And there were multiple reasons... Uh, to have fun with this. I think the setting itself in Pakistan was enough to already make it more interesting than mm -hmm. half of the slasher sequels I was watching. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I felt like there were a few moments where the director kind of uh, took time to, I don't know, insert some Pakistani music or yes. even just kind of walk through the streets. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of gave you an idea of the culture and the people, which I appreciated. Um, and then, yeah, some of the more maybe referential moments like even the killer's uh mask or outfit mm, it, it yeah, reminded yeah. me of the town that dreaded sundown or friday the 13th ah, part yes. two of course um, yeah, it reminded yeah. me of both of those um and, and so i liked that and then despite being low budget i felt like there were um some like inspired moments in terms of the visuals like mm. i actually thought towards the beginning uh when the camera kind of pans to the moon and then it becomes like a blood-filled moon mm -hmm. i thought that that was neat i liked that yeah. um it, it might have not looked amazing especially mm -hmm. by like hollywood standards sure. but it was something just unique and added another dimension to the film i think the gore is actually surprisingly good as well for like these like low budget practical effects i think like the gore and the zombie makeup and all that stuff and the kills in general look really good for such a yeah. cheap production which is like that's what you're coming to these films to see really is decent effects because if it's all you know digital blobs and blood spurts it doesn't feel quite as good 
Whereas in these smaller productions where it's practical effects, you know, you've got makeup people, you've got all this, that and the other, it's all choreographed well. It just film feels like a more sort of cohesive cohesive end product. Yeah. And um another thing that I think translated well, and this goes back to being able to tell that the director, Omar Ali Khan, just really loves movies. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a horror movie that like uh, had other horror movies playing in the background. Yes. Or yeah, there were movie posters on the wall. Um, you know, and, and those movie posters on the wall and the movies in the background and all that stuff. I, I love that. I'm a sucker mm-hmm. for that. Yeah. It just it just makes it more fun. It makes it feel like a, a lived-in world. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you have, yeah, you have posters from Creature of the Black Lagoon, uh, the Bella Lugosi Dracula, and also like a 1980s classic slasher Maniac, which I watched recently. Um, mm-hmm. But there's there's wider ones from there as well. So just like how Edward brought back legendary horror icon Bella Lugosi, who was Dracula, to star in his movie Plan Nine from Outer Space. Director Omar Ali Khan brought one of his favorite Pakistani horror icons for one final role in this film. Mir Rehan was known for being the sort of Bela Lugosi style role in Pakistan's very own Dracula in Pakistan, also marketed as The Living Corpse, which I also watched this week just because I was going on a strange Dracula tours the world um, a binge. And it, it was complete coincidence that it was the one that was in this movie. It's crazy. That's wild. I just want to read a bit um, from an article that Omar wrote shortly after that actor Mir Rahan passed away in 2020. Uh, Pakistani cinema lost one of its unsung diamonds on the 21st of March 2020. Personally, I lost a friend who was one of the gentlest, warmest and most gracious souls that I have been privileged to know. Actor Mir Rahan. In a career spanning several decades, Rahan played his final role in my film Hell's Ground. Coming out of a 25-year-old retirement to play the role that I'd written specifically for him. My own friendship with him started out when my partners at Mondo Macabro, a company that specialises in bringing lost and rare cinematic wonders from all over the world, egged me on to rescue a Pakistani vampire film, uh, Dracula in Pakistan. This 1967 horror film, the first Pakistani film to receive an X rating, had been lost and forgotten over the years, and we were determined to find and rescue the movie in which Rahan played the main and by far his most famous role, a fangled version of Dracula, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde all in one, heavily influenced by Christopher Lee's Hammer production, uh, Horror of Dracula from 1958, but keeping faith with Bram Stoker's novel, which included a uniquely Pakistani perspective from the swinging 60s. The film has been released theatrically in the summer of 67 and had been forgotten since. Now, I'm not sure if I actually saw the rescued version of this film. I mean, I presume I have, or else why would it be floating around on YouTube? But uh, it's it's really good. It's pretty fantastic. After watching another film called uh, Dracula in Istanbul with our friend Matt the, the other night, watching this Pakistan version was a real delight. It captures that ethereal atmosphere of Stoker's, Stoker's original gothic text well, while still bringing an original flair and sophistication of sophistication to the film so seeing that on the back in the background um of like the initial scenes and then later when that character is introduced and they start talking like oh you look like dracula from dracula in pakistan i was like no way they can't be yeah that's awesome that's that's, so cool now i need to watch that (laughs) it's so cool man like oh he looks so he like i mean in 2007 he looks like an old man but in 1967 he looks like 
a really, really good Dracula. He just like looks the part and fits the part, and he plays it so well. It was such a cool little double bill. And like to have dug deep into this Pakistani slasher film that's already obscure, and then seeing that they've referenced another even more obscure film, and then written this lengthy article about like the life and times of this actor that got involved. It's just like it's one of those moments where you're like, there are so many people in this world just have a fond appreciation for all types of cinema. And it's just, oh, I love that. I love that stuff. Right. Yeah, I um, I think one thing that surprised me in this movie, um, because it the way it markets itself on the poster, which is like a mix of Texas Chainsaw and Dawn mm-hmm. of the Dead, I believe, um, and, and knowing that it, it was the first film of its kind, mm-hmm. I kind of expected it to be almost strictly slashing um and i was pleasantly surprised by some of the the social commentary i feel Mm -hmm. like was going on Um, and and i did like that there was like a mix of slashing and zombification like the movie just gets really bonkers by the the second half Mm -hmm. the younger people talking about how like Pakistan is going psycho, but and there's fashion shows, but the the country's still in the Stone Age and stuff mm. like that. Um, and then the older people had referred to the younger people as city devils, um, yeah. and, and you know not being on the right path. And I found all of that fascinating because I just don't mm. know anything about Pakistan no, sure. whatsoever. But so. I feel like that uh, generational divide is sort of universal staple, like a trope of these slasher films. Like if you think about the Nightmare on Elm Street films, all the teens are like the main characters and they're the ones trying to defeat Freddy and none of the parents or the teachers or like the authorities have the time or day and don't really listen to them and ignore them. And it's like uh, this sort of teen uprising in that sense. Um, right. But yeah, the generational conflict in this is um, it's interesting, yeah, to see the sort of social levels of uh, Pakistan in the mid-2000s. Well, and it, there was even some conflict i feel like between the younger characters too it sounded like two were like in school or maybe doing more with their lives to some extent yeah. while the rest were not and so yeah, yeah yeah there's there's the young and old divide but there's also that conflict within the friend group um mm. and, and i certainly am not knowledgeable of pakistan because i watched this movie but i'd say i'm more <laughs> knowledgeable than i yeah. was uh, yeah know. exactly so another sort of bit, a tidbit, a complete coincidence that I found this out as well. Uh, I think the film is a collaboration between a few of the folks at this Mondo Macabro who sort of put out uh, DVDs and physical media and information about weird world cinema. And it was written, the film was co-written by Pete Toombs, who is a British writer and world cinema enthusiast, who released a book that I'm actually currently reading called Mondo Macabro Weird and Wonderful Cinema around the world and man if there was ever a book that was written just for me jack davenport to enjoy it would be this one the book chronicles weirdo cinema from the entire world from like indian song and dance versions of dracula turkish versions of star trek and superman and like all the hong kong and china hopping vampire movies and much 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 more i'm barely a third through the through the book and i've already like added so many films to my watch list i was shocked like looking on this guy pete tombs's credits on letterboxd this man has co-written a very specific niche pakistani horror movie as well as producing a british television series on weird cinema 
and is actually produced a few films for Ben Wheatley, who is one of my favorite contemporary British directors. I don't know. This is just like, it's kind of blown my mind how like strangely coincidental this all is. Yeah, everything is like oddly connected now. I don't know. I don't, I like from this weird, weird film we, we picked because of the poster on Letterboxd. It's crazy. Well, and it's funny now that, now that you mentioned it a few times, I kept thinking, I'm like, I've heard of Mondo Macabro before. Yeah, yeah. Like, Where have I heard of this? And um, right before we started the podcast, I was looking through my, my movie collection, mm. and I noticed that I own the movie Who Can Kill a Child, and I believe it's oh, a Mondo Macabro oh, release. Oh, really? Amazing. And I, um, and I had got that at a convention in Cleveland or something. I only found out about this website this week and my new goal has been like following one of the head programmers on Letterboxd and just like stalking their website to add stuff to my watch list because you know <laughs> these guys are into their weird stuff and they're going to give you the goods. Yeah, I, I've seen their um, their Blu-ray releases floating around conventions mm. and stuff. Um, there's a, a horror convention that comes to Cleveland every year and I, that's where I got that movie. Um, yeah. But it, it's now it's fascinating to know that like it's connected to to hell's ground <laughs> in such a unique way looking through their website now and there's like i have not heard of any of these movies and i'm like all of these look great and so <laughs> many of them are sold out as well like i could have got the living i could have got dracula in pakistan on blu-ray with a commentary track by uh omar khan and pete tombs if only i'd have done this i don't know 10 years before but whatever <laughs> yeah it's honestly if I were to like rank all of the slasher movies I- I've watched <laughs> in the past month or so, I mean, Hell's Ground is, I would probably say like on the upper half. Mm-hmm, I mean, definitely. easily. I-, I think it's upper half. Um, I do think that having the zombie element kind of elevates it to an extent because some of the the makeup and stuff is really gnarly. It- it's mm-hmm. good. Um, just and a like- weird movie the killer in general like sort of wearing this this sort of very representative symbol like he's wearing a, like a white burqa and using this incredibly over the top like medieval weapon it's a it's a spiked ball on a like on a chain it's, a great it's crazy it's such a cool like novel weapon it's non you know we're not using chainsaws we're not using knives we're not using claws we're using this like barbaric sort of like over the top dungeons and dragons fantasy uh, torture device it's so good but yeah the film at large is like largely like paint by numbers you kind of get the beats of a typical 80s slasher but then these there are those moments that sort of elevate it that pepper in little bits and pieces like like the zombie sort of subplot and the sort of the political elements to it and just give you sort of like an insight into pakistan at large rather than just making like a horror film that could be scripted and filmed in america Right, yeah, they they could have made uh, a gore-filled film that didn't feel representative of Pakistan yeah. whatsoever. Um, and that probably would have been easier for them to do that. But, you know, I feel like with this film, um, it, it's a very solid start to making slashers in Pakistan. Mm. Exactly, um, it's I, the, fir- the first gore film in Pakistan. And, and the character, I think, is, like... I mean, if they wanted to make a ton of sequels like every other slasher hey, franchise, I would, I would be down for that. In yeah, a he, he, he has a signature weapon. He was mm-hmm. intimidating. The kills were good. Um, I mean, that's all you nothing... need. That is literally that's ninety percent of the work done. Yeah, I, I mean, there's <laughs> nothing else that I could really ask for in that regard. 
What did you think of like the language used in this film? Because they seem to slip in and out of Urdu and English practically like every other sentence. I found it a bit distracting at first, but I suppose it's very representative of Pakistan at large because those are the two sort of like official languages. Or is it to, um, or is it a choice to make it more accessible? I don't really understand, but I, yeah, it's just a thought. I noticed it too, and I was trying to piece together why it was like that as well and i don't have a mm. good answer i mean part no. of my guess is that i mean I, I guess i can't speak for every country but i feel like english is you know i mm. guess pervasive everywhere at this yeah, point yeah, sure. and, and so i don't know how many places you know in regular conversation do people just kind of switch in and out of different languages mm. um i just don't know how common that is um it was a little jarring at first but it, eventually you do get used to it and it it yeah. doesn't feel out of place it's because i was just so locked into like i'm reading subtitles uh, my main focus here is reading and then like they'd say something in english and i'd just snap out of it and be like oh what and then it would go back into it again i don't know it's just yeah i tried to no. look it up and seeing if like that's a a typical thing in pakistan if like it is like this bilingual thing where they slip in and out but i couldn't really find much on it so if any listeners know please t tweet me dm me tell me what's going on well and i do wonder if just because slasher movies in general are so like embedded in u.s movie culture yeah if, if that was kind of just like you said almost like an homage to that or making mm -hmm. it more accessible um because yeah there's the you know the giallo films from italy and stuff but when you think of like a strict slasher you do think of just hollywood movies most yeah of the time. that wave of sort of late 70s early 80s movies mm -hmm. but yeah for the first slasher film uh or the first gore films to come out of pakistan i was pleasantly surprised and this this feels like one i'm gonna share with friends and you know try and get on the radar a bit more because like how often do you hear about a slasher film that's not out of italy out of america out of the uk i don't know it's just it's cool to see how people on the other half of the world would make a slasher movie it's really fun i i haven't seen every slasher movie by any means yet but <laughs> you know that that is a that is a goal now <laughs> but um but it i i do think it was better than you know three-fourths of those big franchises <laughs> you know yeah. their overall output i think it was better than three-fourths of it so it, it was good. It, I feel like anybody that likes slasher movies, I can't imagine them not liking this. Mm -hmm. I just don't. It, it, oh yeah, I've seen. It's short too. Like it's yeah, short it's and to the point. Really short. Um, I've seen a thousand worse slasher movies than this. Movies that feel like three hours long. They don't really know what they're doing. They're ambling. The kills are boring. Like this, just like it does slasher as it's meant to be done. Well, and, and if you introduce it to friends and you give you know even just a little tidbit of the full story you know like this yeah. is the first really gory film from pakistan i think that is enough to already sell people mm -hmm. um because even though it might appear like a minor film on the surface like it's kind of revolutionary in sure. that regard like it, it's it's doing something new it's taking risks um and, and everything that it's kind of paying its respect to it, it does a good job of that um yeah I, I mean i wholeheartedly would recommend this to like anybody that likes horror movies absolutely 
So yeah, if you're listening and you have any interest in checking out this rarity from Pakistan, check it out. You can find it online or you can find it on DVD. And I think there might even be a Blu-ray from the Mondo Macabre label. So definitely check it out. It's so fun. That's a solid recommend from the Adventures Through Asian Cinema podcast. Hell yeah. The second film that Jack and I are talking about on the podcast today is The Cave of the Yellow Dog, which is a Mongolian film directed by Biyam Basurin Duva. Essentially, it is a slice-of-life film that follows a Mongolian family of five who are nomadic sheep herders, and extra emphasis is placed on the elementary school-aged daughter, Nansal, and a dog that she finds in a cave, which she names Zakor. And I think one of the most fascinating things that I found out about this movie directly after watching it and Googling it was that the director has a couple of other films that came um, before this, or at least one that came before this. And all of these films are kind of quasi-documentaries where she is using amateur actors, or in this case, for the the case of the the Cave of the Yellow Dog, she's really filming um, Mongolian nomads, Mm -hmm. Mongolian nomadic sheep herders. And um, it, it... the naturalistic lens that this film kind of is is looked through it, it it's at first it was a little hard for me to get into mm. I, I was admittedly kind of thinking like eh, not much is really happening sure. <laughs> like i'm just watching a family be a family um but oddly enough when she finds that dog <laughs> <laughs> the movie kind of it kind of started to tug on my heartstrings oh sure and, yeah and, and it became this, like, um, surprisingly strong little tale about just how life works out. Um, mm-hmm. Life doesn't always go as planned. Yep. You can try to account for everything. You can try and account for what you need to do the next day, for political situations, uh, whatever. But, you know, all it takes is one random thing to pop up in your life and kind of make everything crazy and in this case (laughs) a dog showing up kind of made things better and complicated things Mm -hmm. at the same time um and the the main conflict i i suppose in the film is that the the mongolian family is struggling to to make a life for themselves in Mm -hmm. the sense of like it's not an easy life uh, they have to find their own food. They have to protect their animals that they use for a variety of other things. Mm. Um, and when this dog comes into the equation, because Nansal finds it, the father is very worried that it was raised around wolves and that <laughs> yeah. it could and that it could hurt the other animals. Um, and so, a good portion of the film is that the father left. Uh, to go to the city i believe to sell some things and the daughter is supposed to get rid of the dog or i guess the mother is supposed to get rid of the dog for the daughter and that doesn't happen (laughs) yeah and you know i guess from that point forward uh 
as you watch the family kind of pack up and get ready to move to a new place, they have to make the decision of whether they want this dog to be a part of the family or not. Mm. And so it's not like a super deep film, but it's oddly powerful. And I'm curious to get your take on it. Sure. Yeah. It's like, it's a very ambling film in that, as you said, like not a lot really happens. You sort of, you, you sit with this family, you get to go, you know, their structures, you, you see the dynamics between them. And you mainly, uh, you are mainly just following this girl, this girl and this dog. And there is a great uh, W.C. Fields quote, which is, never work with children or animals when you're making movies. And like, the filmmaker here having so much faith in the child to lead the charge of this narrative. Like, it is this docufiction sort of style of filmmaking. But like, she is such a captivating uh, sort of target for the lens. Like... She leads the charge in this narrative. She embodies the heart and soul of this story, and it's really rewarding. It reminds me in part of The Florida Project, Sean Baker's The Florida Project, which came out a couple of years ago, um, looking at communities in this place in Florida. I think it captures the naivety of childhood really well, and the dynamic between people and animals as well. Like, that dog is a star. That dog could be in, like, a thousand films. And like there is a sequence where the dog is sleeping and she finds it and i was like if this dog is dead this will ruin my entire month i love this dog so much if this dog dies that's it that's it i'm never 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 watching a movie again but <laughs> i'm never um, watching a mongolian movie again. <laughs> yeah this is one and done <laughs> no more <laughs> if this is what they're all like then no more you, you know it, it's fascinating when i was trying to do a little bit of research into the film um something that kind of blew my mind it, it it's because you said this now this dog was the star mm. and this dog could have been in a thousand movies sure um but from what i had gathered um that the dog and the family they had never been in a film before no and actually the family of herders didn't meet the dog until shooting that's crazy. And, and from what I gathered even even more, um, when the daughter first meets the dog in the cave, mm. that was actually the first time they met. And so, like, every interaction, now that I look back on it, feels so much more, like, genuine and yeah. earned because it really was, like, she's just filming this family and any <sighs> magic that she captured mm. was, like, real magic. Like, I'm sure there's been, like, a thousand Disney movies that follow this sort of same sort of story narrative. Like, child finds animal, um, wants to keep it, family disagree, blah, blah, blah. But those are obviously incredibly staged, incredibly scripted, like, Disney productions. And this is such this ambling, naturalistic thing that has so much more chemistry and so much more natural chemistry this way. So it makes sense that it is all so genuine and coincidental rather than being forced but it, it comes across on screen as so professional like i don't know it's it's well and there there were parts where the uh the siblings were all kind of just hanging out and stuff and i remember the one scene that sticks in my head is the siblings are just kind of hanging out and the one is kind of like slapping the other <laughs> i'm sitting there i was like that kid is kind of like slapping the shit out of the <laughs> other kid and i was just like that's that's aggressive you know yeah and i was like why would they why would they put the kid through that <laughs> i mean they were clearly playing but it was yeah, just yeah, like sure. dang but then 
you hear that this is a real family. That's what kids are like. And that's you're what like, yeah, that's, that's siblings what siblings dynamic. do. When you're that age, you're just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be boisterous for the sake of it. Like, I don't know. It's just, And it's also like an insight into this nomadic Mongolian culture that we would otherwise never get. Like, there's a completely different family dynamic there than what you or I grew up with. Like, it's crazy. Right. When I, I had read something that had said that nearly one third of Mongolian of the Mongolian population still live as nomadic sheep herders. Right. Mm-hmm. So this director telling stories, um, you know, about her people, about where she came from. Um, I, I feel like she's actually doing like a really important job because mm-hmm. I genuinely, I mean, similar to Pakistan, I don't really know much about Mongolia. Mm-hmm. I, I have, some nuggets of, of knowledge sure, about yeah. its, it's, its troubled and complicated <laughs> history. Yeah, yeah. Um, but em- embarrassingly enough, you know, one of the only things I know about Mongolia is that there's a movie called Mongol, The Rise of Genghis Khan, starring right. Tadanobu Asano. Oh, there it is. <laughs> and, okay. and I'm, you know I had to fit him in here somehow. <laughs> but um, that I, that was like the extent of my, mm. my knowledge, which is not any knowledge. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Um, this is this is a podcast about exploration. We're 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 going through different Asian countries together, most of which we've never even sort of like considered before, especially cinematic outputs. Like, gun to my head, yes, like a couple of weeks ago, if you said name a, a film from Mongolia or Pakistan, I would have a large bullet wound in my head because I wouldn't be able to do it. But that's what this podcast's about: is we're just chipping away at the this world cinema bracket. Right. Well, and I had read that the director, um, so she actually moved to Germany and her reason for moving to Germany, Germany, she said, I wanted to learn how to tell stories, stories that move people of different cultures that are meaningful and universal. For me, the step out of Mongolia, out of my nomadic family based culture was also the yearning to learn to understand and relate to the larger context of the world. And that quote really resonated with me. I'm I'm not a filmmaker, but um, the universal appeal of cinema is like why I watch movies. Like I yeah. love to feel like I'm connecting with people across the world, um, whether I'm watching a movie from another country or whether I'm watching, you know, a movie with you and you're from yeah, the UK yeah, exactly. and I'm from the US. Like I, I love, I love that movies can it's, can do that. It's a universal language. Like it's it's a it's a it's one of the only pieces of common ground we seem to have in this day and age. And I think that it's magical in, in moments, you know. And I love how, while she might have left Mongolia, you know, she's, I guess, using her knowledge and her platform to, you know, still spread its culture and and teach people things. Mm, and yeah. I, I think by the end of this film, if I had to compare it to other things I've watched at least in terms of like how the experience felt it okay. almost i mean it reminded me of like spring summer fall winter and spring yeah yeah um, definitely get some of that i i admittedly like that movie more but i think that's one of the best movies ever made yeah sure. um but that is a a fascinating movie that i almost feel like you could make the argument is like it's not di- it's not a quasi documentary either but the director well, as we came to know has had a tr- he had a troubled history mm. and the movie is dealing with troubled characters in kind of like a redemption arc yeah and, and and i think one of the reasons that movie hits people so hard despite the director's 
complicated and you know frankly pretty gross Mm -hmm. uh, history is is that it does just feel like you're watching like real life you know you're just kind of watching the life of someone unfold and this movie has that too yeah there's a universality to it as well like i have never been uh, a nomadic child in mongolia or a uh, a monk throughout the seasons but there is like there's a common ground and there is you can relate to them on some level like you have been through stuff and you've had to redeem yourself in, in, in other ways like in uh, spring summer whereas cave of the yellow dog like that feeling of of finding something and having to work for it and work with it knowing fully well that it could be detrimental to your family surroundings and things like that i think that's part of the appeal of movies like this even when they're like incredibly ambling and quote unquote not much happens it is it's these comparisons that we can make as the viewer into these lives well and and by the time we get to the end of the cave of the yellow dog without spoiling too much it is like it it was really emotional honestly Mm -hmm. like for me um you know the the whole time you're kind of you you are kind of respecting how the father feels i mean they're struggling to to get by each day Mm -hmm. and so if anything happens you know because of wolves or because of this dog that i mean that could be life or death exactly you know um but eventually as you said like the dog kind of becomes a star and it, it it kind of highlights how intelligent animals really are and how caring they are. I mean, a lot of movies, even where the animal seems to be the star, it kind of doesn't really do animals justice, I feel like, um, <laughs> for like how understanding and caring and how much they add to our lives. Um, and so this dog was constantly really only treated kindly by Nansal, the, mm. the older daughter, but that dog was willing to protect that whole family, you know, oh, in, in the end. <laughs> I was dog. like, what an amazing dog. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, even the father was like, this is a great dog. It's like, yeah. yeah it um, really it's, like, it's like I've just watched like a Lifetime movie or like a Disney movie. It's just like it's so heartwarming in that respect and touching and moving. Oh. Yeah. And it, it was interesting. I had read that um, that this film was uh it was submitted as mongolia's contender for the 2005 academy award for best foreign language film oh okay um and duva's film before that which i'm interested to see now is called the story of the weeping camel um that had won best documentary film at the bavarian film awards uh best documentary at the 57th directors guild of america awards and then it was nominated for Best Documentary at the Academy Awards. Wow. Um, I mean, and so all of her films, she doesn't have a huge filmography, but they all seem to kind of do well on the festival circuit and, mm-hmm. and really strike a chord with people that are like seeking out you know, the obscure corners of world cinema. Well, the story of the weeping camel, I'm just going to read the synopsis here because it's immediately going on my watch list, and that is when a Mongolian nomadic family's newest camel cult is rejected by its mother... A musician is needed for a ritual to change her mind. Like, that is such a fascinating premise. And, like, I need to see it to believe it. So that's definitely right. going on my watch list. Well, and with, with this unique quasi-documentary approach, mm. I just feel like... I don't it'll know, be a I feel like... Yeah, I feel like it'll be a winner. Um, 
you know, this is a filmmaker that kind of immediately has skyrocketed up my up my yeah. radar, and I want to see everything she's done. Yeah, I had a film from two years ago. Um, growing up, Amra is growing up in the Mongolian steppe between herds of goats and YouTube videos. So it's more sort of like a contemporary thing. And dreams of performing on stage in Mongolia's Got Talent. So it is sort of showing this side of Mongolia that is um, less sort of the nomadic sheep herders and more sort of in touch with what, el- what else is going on in the world. So, Is this her uh, most recent one? It's called uh, The Veins of the World. Veins of the World, yeah. Yeah, and, and even reading, I had read through that one too, and... That one was also picked by Mongolia mm. as its official entry for the Academy oh, okay. Awards. Um, so I mean, there isn't there this, isn't a lot. This is their star director. Yeah. <laughs> like if you go but, on Mongolia's page on Letterbox, it's like I think it is literally one page, if that. Like they have a very small output, which is crazy for the like entirety of world cinema history. But uh, yeah, and this is one of the first films that popped up. Mm. Yeah, and, I, and now I don't know why I waited till this podcast to think of this but we need to ask matt why he had seen this first yeah I our think friend that, matt yeah matt, <laughs> what a matt random movie this. I, I don't know maybe he was going through the oscars one year or yeah i have no idea why he would have seen this <laughs> <laughs> it's so random but it, it's good it's it a is good, good. Movie. yeah and i'm glad matt likes it as well i think he gave like three and a half or something so yeah, yeah. but i i guess this has been simultaneously one of the easier and harder episodes i feel like for us because sure. like we are totally out of our our comfort zone in mm. terms of just like what we know um but both films were really good and yeah and made me want to seek out more from each country exactly yeah these directors I, I, I i'd be interested going back to hell's ground i'd be interested to see if there was much in the way of like sort of slasher horror films post hell's ground because it wasn't like a huge film obviously but i was just i just i'd be keen to see if there was another movement or if like it inspired local filmmakers to make films like that because the filmmaker himself didn't go on to make any more movies and i just want to i want to follow up on you know pakistan and see what they're doing and similarly with mongolia obviously it made waves because you know being nominated for an academy award is huge so i want to see if that inspired like a generation of filmmakers from mongolia if it's if this docufiction approach bled through into other parts of the world like that yeah for sure absolutely so that was hell's ground and the cave of the yellow dog so we can now tick pakistan and mongolia off our massive massive world map Ben, I think it's time we pulled up the massive wheel of fortune and pick the next two countries that we'll talk about next week. All right. It's not going to be a week. All right. So for all the listeners, I will be spinning a wheel with every Asian country. (laughs) And the two that we land on are the two that we will pick movies from for the next episode. Yeah. Spin that wheel. The spin is happening, and the first one we got was Kuwait. Ooh. Uh, is there anything for Georgia, Jack? Okay, that might be something. There's 254 films produced in Georgia. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think there are definitely, like, actual Georgian films rather than, like, Mission Impossible 7 being filmed partly in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that we have some options. 
Okay, so um, I think we're going with Kuwait and Georgia. Yes. For everyone listening, um, the two countries for the next episode are going to be Kuwait and Georgia, which, once again, <laughs> As usual. Jack and I have no idea what we're getting into, but yep. that's half the fun of this. Will it so. be another slasher movie? I have no idea. Will it be a nomadic family drama? Couldn't tell you. I don't know what <laughs> Georgia puts out, and I don't know what Kuwait puts out, but we'll definitely find out next time. <laughs> So thank you very much for listening to this episode of Adventures Through Asian Cinema with your hosts Jack and Ben. Next episode we'll be doing Kuwait and Georgian cinema, so stay tuned for that. We don't really know what we're getting ourselves into, but I'm sure it'll be a good time. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Letterboxd, you can follow me at Jack Davenport without any vowels. So that is J-C-K. D-V-N-P-R-T. Ben, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, I typically just use Letterboxd more often than anything else, and my handle is just Brazy Benjamin. It's a brazy old world out there. And you can follow the podcast at, at Asian Cinema Pod on Instagram and on Twitter. Throw us a message or comment on one of our posts. Let us know you're out there. Or if you know Ben and I personally, drop us a DM on Discord or Twitter or wherever you want just to tell us about the podcast. You can also email us at adventuresthroughasiancinema at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time, guys.